Well, good morning. We welcome you to the Lord's house this morning. We trust that the Lord will meet with us today as we are here to worship Him and to hear His word preached. We'll begin our service this morning by standing and singing hymn number or Psalm number 23 in the back of the hymn book, Psalm number 23. We'll stand together as we sing all the verses. be seated. We're turning in the scriptures this morning to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Book of Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll read for our reading this morning from verse 1 to 13. Verses 1 to 13 of Hebrews chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but, but let it rather be healed. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 13. Trust the Lord will bless this reading of his word to us for Christ's sake. Let's bow in a, a word of prayer. <clears throat> our Father, this morning we gather in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer, Lord, we, we gather to worship the God of all creation, but we also, Lord, are so thankful that we worship the God of redemption, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so, Father, if ever it was incumbent upon us to worship Thee because of being our Creator, how much more we as Thy people gather this morning with praise upon our lips to sing to the one who has redeemed us from our sins. Lord, we rejoice this morning in Christ. We are glad that we are joined to him and that all of the blessings and all of the benefits which flow to Christ flow to us as well. We're thankful, Father, that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, Father, we have great confidence this morning, not because of our own obedience or because of our own righteousness. But Father, we thank Thee this morning that we have confidence to come to the throne of grace this morning because of the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we, uh, are, we are gathered here this morning as those that have great needs. Father, we pray that Thou wilt send forth the Spirit of God this morning to, uh, to cause us amidst all of our, our failings and our struggles and our battles to be taken above our circumstances and to fix our eyes and our minds upon Christ and what he has done. 
It's why we gather this morning. Uh, In many ways, it's why we gather around the Lord's Supper so often, because we are prone to forget Christ. And so, Father, send the Spirit with power this morning to enable us to not forget Christ, but the glory in our Savior and what He's done. Father, we uh, are thankful that we're part of a a denomination that continues to preach Christ, that we have men uh, straight across this world, uh, especially in in these parts of Canada and and the United States and and, uh, the British Isles, Lord, we have men who are standing for Christ. Lord, they're not perfect men. They have, they have failures and weaknesses of their own. But Father, we're thankful this morning that these men preach the gospel. And so, Father, we pray that thou wilt help uh, these men of our sister churches and the congregations there to uh, also know the help and power of the Spirit of God. Lord, may the Sabbath day uh, in our sister works be a day that is noted as a day where God came down and met with his people. Lord, we pray for others that are outside our denomination, uh, men who stand behind the pulpit, uh, who also love Christ. And we're thankful, Father, that we're not alone, that uh, straight across this world, the 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to the, to the image of Baal uh, are there, and they continue to preach the gospel. Lord, we often lose sight because of how wicked the age is and how, how uh, evil an age in which we live, we often lose sight of the promise that Christ himself gave to his disciples that he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing can prevent the forward movement of the church of Christ. And so, Lord, remember those who preach the gospel today and may this Sabbath day be a blessing to thy people. Lord, we are poor and needy. We acknowledge that. But, Father, we're thankful that the Lord thinketh upon us this morning. And so, Father, come and meet with us and bless, especially the preaching of the word. Uh, in a few moments as we open the scripture and consider what God has to say to us. Lord, remember us today and meet with us and stir us up uh, by the preaching of the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue our worship this morning by singing hymn number 671. Hymn number 671, O God of Bethel. And we'll stand together as we sing all of these verses. Hymn number 671 and 71.
Well, we bid you welcome to the Lord's house this morning. I trust that the Lord has already encouraged us in worship and has reminded us of our place that we have before Him by virtue of our union with Christ. We trust the Lord will continue with us today. Just a few announcements. Uh, first of all, there's uh, quite a, a, a number of people here the, this week that weren't here last week, so I guess i got to introduce myself again. Some of you I don't remember ever seeing. Uh, my name is Mr. Chris Barnes. You'll see in the, uh, the bulletin, I don't have REV next to my name. Um, you can make of that whatever you'd like. But uh, I actually am not uh, an ordained minister or pastor. Uh, I did study in our seminary many years ago. But uh, the main uh, responsibility that I have is to fill pulpits of vacancies and when ministers are away. Uh, so I live in Greenville, South Carolina with my wife and my two boys and three dogs, uh, often a hindrance in travel, those three dogs. Um, but uh, they're back in Greenville this afternoon, maybe even watching me talk about them right now as this is streamed. I got an earful last week about, um, I, I guess the word that they use nowadays is cringe, right? That's what the young people say when they uh, are quite embarrassed of their parents. So my, my boys in the living room watching me last week uh, were cringing at some of the things I was saying. So I guess that's just what fathers have to put up with. Fathers are always cringing or, or making their children cringe. Uh, but uh, that's who I am. I've been here before, often uh, uh, over, over the years uh, on a number of occasions. And so for many of you, I'm a familiar face, and some of you maybe uh, this is the first time. But uh, I'm glad I'm here. I'm thankful to this session uh, to enable me, give me the opportunity to come and fill the pulpit here. And uh, if I haven't met you yet, uh, maybe I can meet you at the back door. And uh, we trust that the Lord will meet with us today around his word. Remember the other uh, meetings, the, the stated meetings of this week, beginning this evening at 530. Uh, there's a prayer meeting before the evening service. So remember that at 530. And then the evening service is at six o'clock tonight. I'll be here to preach as well. And then remember the midweek meeting on Tuesday, uh, Mr. Golliger will uh, bring the word uh, for that uh, via Skype. And then according to the, to the bulletin, uh, Reverend John Wagner uh, will be here uh, the next two Sundays uh, to minister the word. And uh, he is, uh, I've, I've been friends with Mr. Wagner for many years, and uh, he is indeed uh, a reverend. He's uh, an ordained man who has been used uh, in many uh, ways in our denomination over the years. And I think he was already here not, not too long ago. Uh, so uh, he will be preaching and he'll be here for the next two weeks after I'm gone. And uh, we'll be praying for you uh, and Mr. Wagner uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, just one other announcement. Just remember that the offering plate is at the back. So if you wish to give to the Lord's work, just remember the offering plate is in the back when you leave. Those are all the announcements. We will continue our worship this morning with hymn number 488. Hymn number 48, 488, take the name of Jesus, and we'll stand together as we sing.
We're turning back to that passage that we considered a few moments ago from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And let me once again say how thankful I am for the opportunity to to serve in the Lord's work. I uh, have come to realize that it's not a drudgery. Sometimes when you're asked to do labor, you view it as a task, depending on what the labor is. And uh, you do labor when you preach. It's at the end of the day, at the end of the Lord's day, you're tired. It's hard to explain to people just how much preaching can take out of you. It's a very intense uh, exercise. But I've also learned that when I've been asked to come fill the pulpits, especially in places where I've been, uh, I I almost don't view it as a labor anymore because I get to renew fellowship with those that I have uh, grown to love over the years and have developed uh, good friendships with. So uh, while others may view it as a labor, uh, I, don't, I don't really view it that way. I, I, was, I had the opportunity this week to, to get together with a number of different people that I haven't seen in a while. And I was just thinking this morning that uh, the, the, the blessing in many ways is mine for being here to fill the pulpit. And I know there's a need and I'm glad that I can help in that, in that way, but the older that I get... Uh, Maybe it's just with age or with time, but I, I begin to view these, these times as, as me being the beneficiary of the blessing, and that's the way it's been this week. So I, I've been very thankful for the opportunity uh, to be able to come. This actually was the, the last of the meetings that was scheduled. We actually, uh, Mr. Golliger and I actually scheduled January and February 1st, so I'll be back, Lord willing, for three Sundays each of those times in January and February. But then I suppose after he planned that, he tried to get someone to fill in during these two Sundays in October, and he had a difficult time because it's our minister's week of prayer. So none of the ministers would be available, and so he added this, even though it's the first of, of the scheduled trips, uh, this was, was added near the end. So. Uh, three times I get to come over the, uh, over the next couple months uh, if, if all things continue as they are. I uh, can't take anything for granted these days about um, what, what the world may hold, but we take one day at a time. And so, Lord willing, I'll be back in the will of God uh, in January and February as well. I want to thank Bob for putting, putting me up and uh, putting up with me. Uh, it's not easy uh, to put up with someone like me, and so uh, the last week has been a good a good time to renew fellowship once again. So uh, I thank Bob for uh, for going through the hassle of putting me up this past week. Hebrews chapter twelve. Before we consider the Lord's word this morning, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank thee this morning once again for this privilege that is ours to declare, "Thus saith the Lord." What a sobering thought! To think that flesh and blood should, should dare say, thus saith the Lord, the God of all creation. Father, it is with trepidation, therefore, and with solemnity that we approach this time. And we pray for help. We are prone to wander, as the hymn writer wrote, prone to leave the God we love. Help us, Lord, especially during this time 
the preaching of thy word, the means of grace. Lord, we pray for help. If anything good will come from this service, it must be because the Spirit of God has taken the word and, and, and driven it home in the conscience and in the heart of those gathered here. Remember us, Lord. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're considering this passage that we read from Hebrews chapter 12, but especially we're going to consider the pass or the verses within this section that deal with the topic of chastening or chastisement. I, uh, I preached this message uh, a number of years ago on the heels of a conversation that I had with a friend of mine that uh, was a local uh, friend. I've only know, I only knew him for a few years. But we got pretty close, and we were out to eat, and we were talking about our past. Since I hadn't known him for very long, I didn't know much about his past. And so he, he began to tell me a little bit about his life. He was raised in a Christian home. Uh, his father was a minister, not in our denomination, but in another denomination. But he said that uh, during his days at university especially, he went to Clemson, which is the local uh, university, um, he did not walk with the Lord, and he fell into sin. And telling me a bit about his circumstances, uh, I began to realize very quickly that certain sins carry with it consequences that continue for some time. Some sins don't carry those consequences. Uh, they're still sin in the eyes of the Lord, but there are sins that, along with those sins, carry consequences which God's people often feel for, for years to come. And in explaining this to me, he made the statement, I guess there's some sins that we never stop paying for. He said, I, I, I guess there's some sins we never stop paying for. And immediately, I encouraged him along a different line, and it's that, that, the, the line that I encouraged him along is the theme that I want to consider today. Now, I, very often in my introductions, uh, or, or very often in my introductions, I'll make a quote of someone who maybe dealt with this topic in the past, but not often do I read a lengthy section from a sermon that someone else has preached. And just in the preparation of this message years ago, I, I pulled down the topical index of Spurgeon's sermons and he preached a message on chastisement back many years ago, October 28, 1855. He preached a message simply entitled, Chastisement. And of all the messages I've ever heard read, because one of a, we have a ministry in Greenville where one of our elders reads on the radio sermons by Spurgeon. So none of the, none of the messages that I've ever heard or read myself had such a powerful introduction uh, as this message did. And so dealing with this theme, I just want to read a section of Spurgeon's introduction on the, the, the theme of chastisement. And I, 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 I hope and trust that this will uh, kind of set uh, a framework for the direction that we're going to go this morning. Spurgeon says on this theme of chastisement, God's people can never, by any possibility, be punished for their sins. God has punished them already in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ, their substitute, has endured the full penalty for all their guilt. 
And neither the justice nor the love of God can ever exact again that which Christ has paid. Punishment can never happen to a child of God in a judicial sense. He can never be brought before God as his judge and charged with guilt because that guilt was long ago transferred to the shoulders of Christ and the punishment was exacted at the hands of his surety. But yet, while sin cannot be punished, while the Christian cannot be condemned, he can be chastised. While he shall never be arraigned before God's bar as a criminal and punished for his guilt, Yet he now stands in a new relationship, that of a child to his parent. And as a son, he may be chastened on account of his sin. Folly is bound up in the heart of all of God's children, and the rod of the father must bring that folly out of them. It is essential to observe the distinction between punishment and suffering. The one suffering may be as great as the other, The sinner who, while here, is punished for his guilt may suffer no more in this life than the Christian who is only chastised by his parent. They do not differ as to the nature of the punishment, but they differ in the mind of the punisher and in the relationship of the person who is punished. God punishes the sinner on his own account because he is angry with the sinner and his justice must be avenged. His law must be honored and his commands must have their dignity maintained. But he does not punish the believer on his own account. It is on the Christian's account to do him good. He afflicts him for his profit. He lays on the rod for his child's advantage. He has a good design towards the person who receives the chastisement. While in punishment, the design is simply with God for God's glory In chastisement, it is with the person chastised for his good and for his spiritual profit and benefit. Besides, punishment is laid on a man in anger. God strikes him in in wrath, but when he afflicts his child, chastisement is applied in love. His strokes are, all of them, put there by the hand of love. The rod has been baptized in deep affection before it is laid on the believer's back. God doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve us for naught, but out of love and affection, because he perceives that if he leaves us unchastised, we shall bring upon ourselves misery ten thousandfold greater than we shall suffer by his slight rebukes and the gentle blows of his hand. Take this in the very starting, that whatever thy trouble or thine affliction, there cannot be anything punitive in it. Thou must never say, now God is punishing me for my sin. Thou hast fallen from thy steadfastness when thou talkest so. God cannot do that. He has once for all done it. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. He is chastening thee, not punishing thee. He is correcting thee in measure. He is not smiting thee in wrath. There is no hot displeasure in his hand or in his heart. Even though his brow may be ruffled, there is no anger in his breast. Even though his eye may have closed upon thee, he hates thee not. 
He loves thee still. He is not wroth with his heritage, for he seeth no sin in Jacob, neither iniquity in Israel, considered in the person of Christ. It is simply because he loves you, because ye are sons, that he chastises you. I thought that there's not a, a, a more appropriate introduction that can be given. There's not a more clear explanation of the difference between punishment and chastisement than Spurgeon gave in the introduction to his message. And so as I read that, especially the line where he says, now God, now God is punishing me for my sin, is often what God's people say. When my friend said there's some sins that you, you pay for that you don't stop paying for, that's the first thing that came to mind. And I remember saying it to him directly, if you're still paying for that sin that you committed, you're going to hell because you're paying for your sins. And I, in, in, in many ways, I explained to him what Spurgeon delineated so well. There's a difference between God punishing sinners and God chastening his people. Although, as Spurgeon brought out, the circumstances and the duration and the nature of the chastisement may be similar in this life to that which sinners undergo in, in punishment. Yet, the one is designed for our well-being, and it's done in love. And so, with that understanding this morning, the difference between God punishing sin and God chastening his people, I want to just consider, spend a few moments to consider this theme of chastisement. Because whether you are being chastened at this moment, or you can look back in your experience of chastening in the past, one thing we all know, because as we saw last week, we still label, labor in these vile bodies, waiting for the redemption of this body when it will be made perfect. As, as long as we labor in these bodies and struggle with that law that's in our members, as Paul mentions in Romans chapter 7, we will say with Paul the things that we desire to do, we don't do. And the things that we want to do, they're the things that we don't do. As long as there's that conflict, there's going to be breaking of the law. There's going to be times when the Lord will move in chastening. Sometimes it's personal. Other times it's congregational, as we saw on Tuesday night. And sometimes it's national. You can see all these examples throughout the Word of God. We all will undergo chastening if we're God's people. And so I want to consider this theme of chastening. The first thing I want to consider this morning from the passage in Hebrews chapter 12 is that chastisement is reserved, as we've kind of already seen from the introduction, it's reserved for those that are loved of God. In verse 6 of our text, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Chastisement is reserved for those loved of God. Two things under this point that I want to consider. Chastisement is an indication that we're the sons of God. That's what the passage tells us, that we are sons he goes on to say in verse 7, if you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. So it's, it's a reminder to us uh, that, of the fact that we're sons of, of this relationship that we have with the Lord. And as Spurgeon brought out so well, it's, it's a reminder to us that the relationship that we have, especially as we are dealing with chastisement, 
is the relationship of a father and a son. Uh, uh, that of a father and a son. It's a unique relationship. Uh, it's, it's, a sad, it's a sad thing when we see in society or even in the lives of those that, 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 were, that, were, uh, that are our relations or, or family or friends. It's always a sad thing to see a relationship between a father and a son that's not functioning the way it's supposed to be. And so I started to think in the preparation of, of this message, what is it that sets that relationship apart? What is it that's so unique about the relationship of a father and a son? And there may be, there may be other things that, that come to mind as we go through this. I, I thought of, of six things that set that relationship apart. Because if, if the Lord in his word tells us that he is now our father and we are sons, then it, it, it should help us. That, that there's a reason why the Lord explains our relationship in that fashion. Because there are things about that relationship in the temporal sense that we see every day that should apply to the relationship we have now with the Father. And so I thought of seven things that set that relationship apart. Now, it, it benefits you to be a man who has a son. Because you can say these things that we're going to consider... But in a, in a lot of ways, until you actually have a son, until you have a child, some of these things are just information. It takes on a, a completely different meaning when you have a son. And so I just want to consider these few things. First of all, father-son relationship is a special relationship. It's a special relationship. I say it's a special relationship because when you have a son... There are feelings and emotions that are unlocked from your heart that you, you never thought you had. Or that you, you may have been, it may have been explained to you that, that this is the experience of a father and a son. But until you actually experience it for yourself, there are, there are feelings that, that flood the heart that you never thought even existed. And when, when, my, when my oldest son Judah was born... Um, I, I remember being at the hospital, and they brought Judah to us in, in the room, and I held Judah. Um, I'm not used to holding fragile things, right? I'm more of a, a rough-and-tumble, kind of an outdoorsy kind of guy, so right away I realized that there are certain things in this life you have to be kind of, kind of gentle with, especially a newborn, right? One of the things that newborns have a difficulty doing is even holding their head straight depending on uh, the nature of the child. Some are weaker than others. Uh, sometimes you have to immediately support the head. Judah was a huge baby. Okay? He was two weeks late, and, and he was born via C-section because there were some complications, but, but he was big. Uh, and so right away when I was holding Judah, I could see he could hold his, he could support his own head. His neck was strong enough. And, and as I was holding him in those first few minutes, he actually pulled his head back and looked at me this close to my face, which is an amazing thing because newborns aren't really supposed to do that kind of thing. And I'm looking at this child, and he's looking at me. Now, I was told later that their eyes really aren't developed, so he's probably reacting to the, to the voice because they hear the voice as they're growing in the womb. So they're, they're used to the voice, but they can't really see. But I, you, don't, you don't think that through when you're holding your son 
And he pulled his head back and he looked at me this close. And the, the emotions and the thoughts that flood the soul, I don't care how hard or how much of a man's man you are, at that point, you are softened immediately. And you're softened because of this relationship. It's just built in to a man. That when he is faced with the thought that this is my son, it unlocks all kinds of thoughts and emotions in the heart. And I can't even remember. I may have even started bawling. I don't know what I did, but all I remembered was how powerful that moment was. That now I'm holding this infant. And I'm used to seeing kids, right? I come from a family of six. My cousins were always over our house. They, my mom's sister had seven, right? So we always had kids, and they all had kids. And, and so I'm used to seeing infants and babies. You go to church, there's always infants and babies. But this was different because it's my son. And I say it, it, it brought home with power the uniqueness of this relationship. He's my son, I am his father. And so I say even in that experience, you know there's something unique about the relationship, a special relationship you have with your son. Then there's the interest that parents have with their own children. Now, there may be other children in the church or other children that you interact with, but by necessity, you're more interested from a responsibility perspective, if only from a responsibility perspective. You're more interested in what your kids are up to. If other kids are misbehaving, that may be something that I notice, but I'm looking to where my kids are because if they're misbehaving, they're going to be dealt with, right? So, and that's just by nature. Why is it by nature that I'm not as interested in what other kids are doing than what my own kid is doing because he's a reflection on me why because i have a special relationship with him so there's there's interest and the interest grows as the relationship matures my parents we were raised roman catholic and so there was not uh the understanding of the gospel we were still dead in sin but they were excellent parents i mean i i tell people and i honestly mean this that every time I was spanked, there was never a time where I sat there and said, I don't know why he did that to me. If anything, I could think of multiple times, countless times, where I did things that deserved to be disciplined but wasn't. So when I was disciplined, uh, I, I, it was never with a sense of, you know, he, he misread that or he was abusive or anything. So I, I come from a a family that in many ways I'm thankful for, even though we didn't know the gospel. I had parents who, who functioned in that way, that proper, proper way. One of the things that my parents did is they, they threw their lives into the raising of their children. Uh, and that used to be, I don't know, I can't say anymore, thankfully, because I've, I've been out of the Church of Rome for, for 40 years or so. Um, I'm sure as with society as a whole, uh, things are deteriorating. But I remember, even in, as a Catholic in, in the Catholic Church, that was one thing I always looked back upon uh, with uh, thankfulness, is that there was a strong emphasis on the family. And uh, I was part of that. I was raised in a family. My parents did everything for the children. They took us to sporting events. There were six of us, and we all signed up for different things. And I still don't know how they did it. There was a period of time where the youngest in our family was starting to be taken to different events. They were running six of us 
all over the place to different, to different events all at the same time. And it would be for the entire season, whatever sport it was. And you just assume that's what parents do until you have your own kids and realize what that means. And you say, they're not going to play sports because I'm not, I'm not going to do that insanity. But I say that to say that they had a vested interest uh, of being involved in the lives of their children because of the relationship. My, my dad coached me. He, he gave extra time because that's what he felt he wanted to do because it's, it's his son. And so there's interest, special interest that you have in your own children. Then there's a sacrifice, the sacrifice that parents make. We often don't think of this, but if you stop and think of society, you realize that part of the reason, part of the reason why when a society becomes more carnal and more godless and more selfish, there's less children being born. You look at societies that are known for humanism, some of the, some of the, the nations in Europe or some other, other places that have pretty much turned their back e upon any organized religion, religion, that they just live for self. And one of the things that you'll find about that society is they're a little bit concerned about the future of the economy because they're not producing enough children to keep the economy going. The birth rate is declining. It's not just by coincidence that the more ungodly a society gets and therefore the more selfish a society gets, the less children are born. Why? Because the moment you give birth and have a, have a son or a daughter, you are obligated to sacrifice your life. There are things that you give up because you're a parent. It's why abortion, unfortunately, is the method of choice. When a person gets pregnant and they realize, I don't want to give up my life. So they abort their child. Why? Because at least they understand that if I go through with this birth, it's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require a complete change of life. So they abort the child. They murder the child because they don't want to give up their life. Why? Because being a parent requires sacrifice. I remember a good friend of mine. My boss, actually, his, his wife had, his had her daughters down at the beach years, many years ago when the, when the girls were, were young. They're, they're adults now and have their own kids. And, but there's these changing rooms that you go into at the beach that you can change into your, your, your swim attire. And when you're done, you can wash off the, the showers. It's, I'm sure they have them up, up here near the beach, although it's, Calgary's not exactly near the beach. Maybe I'm informing you of these things. But um, they, they, they have these for men and women. And uh, my boss's wife was in there with, his, with her two little girls. You know, she's still in that period of time where she's protecting and, and raising the children. And when they walked in, there were a number of these young adult girls, late teens, early 20s, changing into their, their swim attire. And as the, the story was told, as my boss's wife was getting her girls prepared to go into the water... She looked up, and one of the girls was turning sideways, looking into the, into the mirror that was there, and in a flippant, joking fashion said to her friends, just imagine, by now I would have been showing. And so my, my boss's wife was immediately struck with the implications of what she was saying. Is that she had abortion. She had an abortion. 
And the, one of the main reasons why, based upon her own language, that she had an abortion was she did not want that child to alter her lifestyle in any way. And so as she's looking at her figure, she, in a sense, was gloating in the fact that she had the abortion. If I didn't have the abortion, I'd already have a belly. I wouldn't be able to go out in public and be seen like this because of the shame that would be associated with it. So she aborted the child. Why? Because she understood whether she knew the exact reason or not. She understood that if you go through with this birth, it's going to require sacrifice. You have to sacrifice your life. You, be, you take on a different life when you have a child. So this relationship of father and son, it requires sacrifice. It also requires provision. Children can't take care of themselves. The parents take care of the child. They provide for the child. My, sometimes children, if they are not, um, if they're raised in a, 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 house, a household where things are provided for them, sometimes they don't even realize it. They, they almost assume that it's natural, right? Dinner time, dinner's there. They don't even think about the labor that the husband or the wife has to go through to provide, to get the money, to all the, the nature of providing. They don't think about any of that. It's, I'm, I'm the child. It's provided. And, and maybe when they get a little bit older, they begin to realize, maybe when they go out and work for themselves, my son is uh, soon to be 17, so he technically could be driving right now. And uh, he mentioned, happened to mention... Uh, like two days before I came up here, as I'm scrambling to finish work, right? He says, hey, Dad, can you take me to the, to the DMV to get my permit? And I said, no, I'm not, because I'm scrambling to finish work, and I really have other things on my mind right now. But um, as we were talking about this, I said, uh, you know, son, when you get your permit and then get your license, um, it's not as simple as just kind of go out, going out into the car and driving, you know, uh, there is such a thing as car insurance that you're going to have to pay for. And uh, you do realize how much that is. And so I assume many young people just think, well, my parents just jump in the car and drive. They're not aware of everything that comes with it. Part of that is they, they haven't had need to think about those things because it's all provided for them. It's not until they get a little older and they get out on their own, wow. It's not as simple as just moving out and everything continues as it was. I actually got to pay for this stuff now, right? And real estate prices are going up. Apartments are going up. Everything. So a lot of times when young people move out, they run into financial problems because they, they never even had to think about this stuff before. Why? Because the father provides for the son. You also have uh, counsel that's given. Counsel that's given. Uh, this is kind of what takes place when the children get a little bit older. You can instruct your children, but instruction is a little bit different than counsel. Uh, counsel would be, in my opinion, given to people that can think kind of rationally through things. You always instruct your children. You teach your children from their earliest days. Remember last week we considered Timothy, that from a child, which is the same word that is used to describe the baby in the womb when Mary and Elizabeth met, the baby leapt. In her womb. So Paul said of Timothy that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, right? So from the earliest days they're instructed. But counsel 
is generally given to someone who maybe is at a crossroads. Their decisions have led them to a place where they need to be guided and directed. So you're dealing obviously with more of a, a responsibility. Uh, the person has already accepted responsibility. So as a parent, you begin to shift from provision to counsel. Kids get a little older. They come home maybe and say dinner will be ready. Oh, I already ate when I was out. Well, because they provided for themselves, right? So the provision starts to slowly drop off, but the council takes on a new role. Now you're dealing with, with a son who can understand things. He understands sin. He understands the, the age in which, he, in which he lives. And now he maybe is wrestling with these things. And so he comes and asks, you know, what would you do in this situation? That's something that is, is provided for, given to a son when he's older. And that, that's kind of where I am. Now, I'm not as concerned about, I don't have to sit there and put food on the table for my kids. You know, they know where the cereal box is, right? So they, they technically can eat for themselves and they can take care of that, but they still need counsel. And that will never go away, that relationship. All the way to my dying day, I trust that my children will look to me for counsel because that's the relationship, the trust and the wisdom that someone gains over years, you're not going to find a better source of counsel than a father who is functioning the way a father should. And then um, protection as well. Protection. This, this applies to a, a mother as well as a, a, a father. But uh, oh, throughout the scriptures, you find that this is uh, the understanding. The Lord gathers us as uh, a hen gathers her chicks. The idea of of overview or oversight and protection. And then the last thing I thought of is inheritance. Inheritance. The son gets it all most of the time. When, when the relationship is proper, the children get the inheritance. And so as I thought about all these things, and, and maybe spent a little too much time on some of these things, but as I thought about these things, I thought, how does this picture for us the relationship that we have with the Father. That is different than when the Lord judges the ungodly. We talk about chastening. We talk about chastening being the portion of his people. How is it different? Well, as I thought about these very things, the, 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 the nature of the special relationship, I realized that a lot of these things were mentioned in the book of Romans chapter 8. And, and you'll remember, if you want to turn to Romans chapter 8, every one of these things that I mentioned is touched on in that chapter that Paul is saying this is what this is the place the position you now occupy as the children of God the, the special relationship I mentioned that first Romans 8 15 to 17 for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry Abba father and the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, and, and so on. The special relationship, we're children of God by adoption. I was just out with a brother yesterday, and he showed me a video, and I've seen these videos before, of foster children that are adopted, officially adopted into families. And they set the stage, they either give the, give the child a gift or, or something that they're unwrapping a letter or something. They got the video rolling because they want to see the reaction 
of the child, this foster child that has been bounced and bumped from home to home, never really understanding the way a father should be or a mother should be. And he showed me this video, and I, like I said, I've seen him before. The child's opening up a gift and got the gift, but then there was a card in there, and, and he opened up the card, and, and they said, read it. And as, he, as he's reading this card where it says how much they love him and uh, appreciate him being there, they say at the end, we want you to be part of the family, and they gave the name of the family, and he couldn't even get through it. He couldn't even get, this kid maybe was 10, 12 years old, couldn't even get through the part about becoming a member of the family and just immediately broke down and said how much he loved them. And it's, it's, it's one, of those, one of those videos that unless you're a Neanderthal, you, you, you break down. It's just so emotional. Why? Because there's a difference between being a foster child and being a son. When you're a son, all the benefits that come with being part of the family are now yours. And he realizes this. I am, I am now just as much a child of this family as the other children. Well, the, in, 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 a, in a crude way, maybe not even in a crude way, I think there's a lot of strikingly resembling parallels between that and what the reaction is in the child of God who reads this passage and understands that we, according to Ephesians chapter 2, were dead in trespasses and sins. Without God and without hope in the world. And then you read a section like this, explaining the relationship that we now have with the Father because of our union with Christ. And Paul says, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. What a, what, a, what a transformation that we now have as the sons of God. There's a special interest. There's a, there's a special interest that parents have, right? That was the second thing we considered. Look at verse 11, or I'm sorry, verse 14. For as many are le- as are led... By the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The idea there is a constant guiding, a constant oversight, a constant leading. The same way that parents have a special interest in the direction that their children are going. We're told here that those that are the sons of God are led or guided by the Spirit. Again, a great picture of of what we are now by virtue of being the sons. And obviously... One of the greatest things you can say about the, the nature that we or the, the, the nature of the relationship that we have with God is that we can see the sacrifice that God as the Father made for us. Later in this chapter, in verse 31 and 32. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely? Give us all things. No greater sacrifice can any parent make than the sacrifice that God the Father made in the sending of his own son. Why? So that we are brought into the family and are now called sons. Sacrifice. You have provision. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities or our shortcomings, the things that we need in our walk with the Lord. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession with groanings that cannot be uttered. Provision. 
The Spirit of God guides us, especially in the place of prayer, into how to properly pray according to the will of God so that we receive from the Father the things that we need in our walk with the Lord. Counsel. You have counsel. Romans 8, verse 14. The counsel that we receive from the Father. As many... Oh, I, I, that, was, that was under provision. Uh, I'm sorry, provision was verse 26. Provision was verse 26. The Spirit helpeth our infirmities. Counsel is verse 14. Verse 14. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And then you have inheritance in verse 19 uh, to verse 23. For the earnest expectation of the, uh, expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And he goes on to talk about the, the inheritance that we have as children of God. All those things that we considered were special, unique parts of the relationship that a father has with his son. In this one chapter, God says he has... He occupies that relationship with us. And so there's a, there's a major difference between judgment or wrath being poured out on those that are in sin and chastisement for the children of God. It's an indication that we're the sons of God. The second thing under this point, and we really have to get moving through the, through the message here, it's a reminder that God is taking care of our greatest need. Not just that He is our Father and that we have a special relationship, but that He's taking care of our greatest need. Loved of God, according to the passage, in dealing with the relationship that we have is connected in the scripture with redemption and deliverance from wrath to come. The greatest need that God's people have is, is twofold, really. Uh, the greatest need that we have, and we're going to consider a little bit of this tonight in dealing with the passage from Revelation that talks about the righteousness of the saints. Uh, we'll deal with that a little bit tonight, so I don't want to spend too much time on this, but but the greatest need is that we not only have our sin removed because God's of purer eyes than to behold iniquity and sin, but to also have given to us to be in the sight of God as having perfectly kept His law. We talk about what Christ did upon the cross, and this is so important because I think it's generally overlooked even in evangelicalism today, in churches that preach the gospel. There's an aspect of the gospel that is missed in our day. And I say it is because in my experience, it took 10 years of being in evangelical churches before I even heard of this doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ. I say that the greatest need man has is twofold. Not only to have your sins forgiven, it's not enough that you have your actual transgressions blotted out in the sight of God, right? We understand that, that God if, if your sins and your iniquities are not removed, if they're not blotted out, then by virtue of his justice and his keeping the standard of his own law, God must judge those that are guilty before him. Right? And so we talk about the work of Christ and why the work of Christ is the only work that God accepts to wipe away or wash away the sins of his people. Why? Because as Christ was hanging upon the cross... He became a curse for us. He suffered in our stead, in our place. We talk about the, the substitutionary work of Christ, right? The vicarious sacrifice of Christ. The word vicarious means in the place of. 
That's why we preach the cross. Because without the cross work of Christ and without the shedding of his blood, man has no, no access before God because he's still dead in his sins. But God sent Christ into the world to suffer and to shed his blood to wash away our sins. And so we understand that we need trust and faith and confidence and resting upon what Christ did on the cross to wash away our sins. But that only deals with one of the two areas that we have need. Because God not only commands us not to break his law, he actually commands us that we have to perfectly keep the law. You go through the scriptures, you'll find that the theme of life, eternal life especially, is not generally associated with the cross work of Christ. Listen to what I'm saying. It's not generally associated with what Christ did on the cross. Eternal life is generally associated or connected, connected with keeping the law of God perfectly. And there's a difference. The one is removing the guilt. The other is providing in the sight of God a perfect obedience. And the two are, the two are distinct. They're, they're, they're separate. And so when we refer to someone being justified in the sight of God, we often refer to two things. The Shorter Catechism says, what is justification? It's an act of God's free grace to sinners wherein he pardons all of our sins and he accepts and accounts our persons as righteous in his sight. Not by anything wrought in them or done by them, but solely by the imputation of Christ's righteousness put to their account and, and believed and, and accepted by faith alone. So there's, there's two. There's two aspects of, of standing before the Lord. Guilt removal and a perfect righteousness put to the account of God's people. A reminder that when we now are, are sons of God and declared as righteous in His sight, and I said we'll, we'll deal with a, this a little bit uh, more tonight as we consider the righteousness of the saints it's a reminder to us that God has taken care of our greatest need in the work of Christ. I'll just mention the last two parts of the, of the, of the message since our time is gone. Chastisement isn't just uh, reserved for those loved of God. It's uh, for our benefit. It's for our benefit. Chastisement sanctifies us in service. Look at the, look at the passage, verse 11 uh, of, of our text. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Fruit, it's often associated with labor or work in the Christian life. <clears throat> when we're in sin and we're not right with the Lord, the Lord chastens us in order that we, we bring forth fruit. And so in our service to the Lord, uh, the, the, the chastisement sanctifies us in service. Uh, chastisement encourages us in communion. Because in verse 10, it says that we're partakers of his holiness. Uh, talking about the, the work that God does. Our, 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 our worldly fathers chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Communion, fellowship, holiness. It's all connected with chastisement for our benefit. And then chastisement reminds us not to make the same mistake again. We should learn from the chastening hand of the Lord. That's the idea of national chastening. When the nation is suffering and the Lord is judging a nation, days of humiliation and prayer, which we have, at least in the United States, I don't know about the history of Canada, we've had times in the past where our leaders called for days of humiliation and repentance and prayer because they realize that the judgment 
or the chastening that the, na the, that the nation is receiving uh, is, is, is for the benefit in order that, that we don't make the same mistake. I, how many times have we seen this in a congregational sense or in a personal sense? When the Lord chastens a congregation or he chastens us in our walk with the Lord, it's in order to show us not to make the same mistakes again, right? Because we're prone. We're prone to make the same errors. We're prone to hold on to uh, things that brought the chastening. And, and Paul says here in verse 13, he, he reminds uh, those that are being chastened, make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. It's not intended for a child to constantly be beaten or constantly being chastened by the Father. It's intended to bring forth the fruit of righteousness and holiness. The word lame there is interesting. Uh, it either is referring to the, the nature of the discipline, which is harsh, or the repetitive nature of the discipline, which is over and over again. Either way, Paul uses an interesting word here that after the discipline, you've know, you know you've gotten discipline because the word lame here is used. It's not intended by the father that the child remains lame or incapacitated from the discipline. The discipline is administered in order to teach the lesson and that the lame be healed and that the child goes on in in, uh, in proper obedience. So the chastisement is sanctifies us in service, encourages us in communion, reminds us not to make the state same mistake. And then the last thing is chastisement, therefore, should never be despised. It should never be. It's not pleasant. It may not be enjoyable, but understanding the purpose behind the chastening, it should never be despised. Verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked him. Don't throw in the towel. Don't throw in the towel or become so frustrated at the chastisement that you give up. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. And that passage that we considered on Tuesday night from the psalm, Psalm 119, verse 71 the psalmist not only didn't despise it, but he actually said in verse 71 of Psalm 119, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. It's good for me. He saw the proper use of chastisement, which is correction, instruction. And the, and the, and the, the, the one who desires to walk before the Lord in that fashion, in a, in a holy fashion, understands it's good that you go through such affliction. It's a reminder to us that we're the sons of God. And so I trust, as we've seen uh, this topic uh, and, and considered this theme of chastisement, that we will view in our own Christian lives the times where the, Lord is, where the Lord's hand is heavy upon us. We'll view it as a reminder. Not, just, not that the Lord desires us to, to always go through difficult times, but it's a reminder to us that if we weren't sons, he may even just let us go. But because we're sons, he, he brings us through times of chastening and affliction. And I trust that it's our testimony that we can say with the psalmist, it's good for me that I've been afflicted or chastened, that uh, we have this great relationship with our Father because of the work of Christ. So I trust the Lord will write this word upon our hearts 
for his name's sake. We're going to finish the service uh, this morning by standing and singing hymn number 275. 275, Savior of Sinners. And we'll stand together as we sing all four verses of this hymn. Probably should have given you more time. <laughs> the, the two musicians almost have to run up to the front. But uh, that's the nature of having a guest preacher. Kind of doesn't know exactly the way things work. Uh, so hymn number 275, Savior of Sinners, will sing all four verses. Remain standing for our closing word of prayer. Our Father, we pray now that as we go from this place that the word preached and the, the, the remembrance of these great truths of our, our relationship that we now have with Thee as our Father would not soon be forgotten by Thy people. Lord, remember those that may be among us that know not Christ. Show them their need for a Savior. Oh, Father, we pray that they would 
would understand that the only way they can view God as Father is if they're right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, take us from this place rejoicing. And, Father, we pray that tonight we'll also know thy help. May the Lord's day from beginning to end be a day that brings great honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.